This is Series 5 of Brave New Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, and I welcome you to the Women's Impact Project, in which my guests share how they are positively impacting the world and the courage it takes to do so. If you're interested in making a difference by guesting on podcasts, you can find out how in my latest book, Dare to Share. This week's guest is Bumi Akintonwa, producer, writer, executive producer and CEO of the Little Black Book Company, a UK production and distribution company backed by Impact X Studios, a fund created by a group of inspirational black investors to support underrepresented entrepreneurs with potential to make a significant difference. Welcome, Bumi, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Bumi. How are you? Hi, Lou. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. So we actually did have a catch up the other day. Um, and luckily, because we talked for hours and could have talked for more hours. And uh, and it, the reason was that because we, we hadn't actually seen each other since 2013, when I came to Rome to work for you on a documentary about Nicole Kidman, wasn't it? That's right. God, it seems like an age away. Yeah, yeah. But it was an amazing time. I had a really fantastic time. I had met very many fond memories. So it was fantastic to see you in person. And it's really great to have you on uh, the podcast. So I wonder how the last couple of years have been for you. Uh, well, it, it's felt a long way away from those uh, heady's relaxed days in, in Rome. I've moved back to London and I moved back to London with great expectations, with a lot of potential projects, uh, working with uh, also with a, a new impact fund that is which has been set up to help underrepresented entrepreneurs, particularly women. And we had a lot of great projects in mind. We had we were just about to do a, a pilot for um, a program which would mean we were traveling through Berlin and Paris and back back to Rome and Milan and also doing some filming in London and working with some people in the States. And of course, then the pandemic happened and everything was put on hold. We got to Berlin and that was about it. So um, the last couple of years have been like for everybody else. They've been uh, a challenge. It's definitely been an up and, and down time it's impacted everything uh, there's been uh, everything from how you develop a project to what project how projects can be sold to just basic day-to-day -day living I think where does your income come from yeah so how, how what did you do about income if all the projects came to a grinding halt well a good question we just had to manage on income that we had at the, at the time take advantage where possible of any government schemes and try and push projects that were already made. But I think broadcasters, broadcasters were also, um, I should say that I, what I do is I'm a, both a distributor and a producer. So I produce content, I produce sometimes write as well um, and distribute TV shows, but broadcasters too were impacted by the, um, by the pandemic. They didn't have, for instance, 
the advertising that they normally do so the budgets were affected so across the board it was just very very difficult to move it was like everything was really put on hold that's really how I would say life was on hold in every sense and it takes resilience to be able to kind of sit with that doesn't it and just know that there's you know you've done everything that you can and you're just going to have to sit it out and see see what happens yeah I mean when I say it was on hold and it was it was on hold in the sense that things couldn't go to they couldn't be completed but throughout this pandemic throughout the last two years how is it has it been two years it feels like five yeah nearly very nearly (laughs) (laughs) I've been really busy I've been busy 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 day and night you know so it's I've never felt like oh god I'm doing absolutely nothing staying at home obviously life has been zooming and whatever other platforms whatsapping etc but I have managed to get go ahead with quite a lot of projects from the development side and I think that must be true of, of most people that work in the kind of creative field that they hopefully they now have a volume of work that they can now um, hope to take to market and the the big difference which has happened I think in the last even the last few weeks is that it now looks like there is a marketplace again uh, you know those places that we used to go on an annual we on our annual um, trips to to Cannes etc to discuss tv shows now hopefully hopefully oh we say hopefully because you know it's been such an unpredictable time hasn't it but hopefully we're, we're we're getting back to to actually going to those markets and doing that so as a child were you quite a resilient child did you know what you wanted were you sort of headstrong or were you very creative and dreamy as a child i, I was convinced i was going to be a pop star i think i love music I used to make up songs as I walked around the house, you know, if I got a chore, if it was about, if I was doing the hoovering, then I'd make up a song about doing the hoovering. Probably do a little bit of dance as I went up and down the stairs. So, and then I'd probably would, uh, I'd do shows and maybe force my little brother to join in and make my, you know, make people watch. So, and my kids now, my kids were the same really, so it must be in the genes somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And when you left home, you then did go into kind of the music and arts industry, didn't you? You you became the lifestyle editor for The Voice. So what was that kind of world that you crashed into? And it must have been pretty thrilling in your young 20s. Yeah, it was. It was it was very exciting because it, it crossed over. You're, you're right. I I work. I was a lifestyle um, editor for The Voice, but I also worked for a magazine called Sky, and I did some articles for places like The Standards, etc. I worked for, I worked and and Blitz magazine, and I worked across the genres of fashion and music and lifestyle. So it was great. I got to do some fantastic things, meet some fabulous people. Uh, and interview them but also I went to things like the Paris fashion shows and uh, (laughs) which was which was brilliant you know hung out with people like Jean-Paul Gaultier it was a a wonderful time and all at the time again that pre-pandemic life um, there were all these parties you know the thought that you know you, you would there would be parties every week 
people would throw a party every time somebody launched a record. Record stores existed then. HMV would have massive parties and they invite every pop star on the planet. It was a great time. It was really sort of the beginning of youth culture on on TV as well. And so you managed to become a a TV reporter for um, a youth series called Network 7. So what was that about and how did you get on that? Uh, I guess because I was I was writing. So uh, I was interviewed by um, Charlie Parsons at the time, who was the producer. I think he was 25. It was a really, really, it was a, as you said, it was the first youth show. So everyone was super young from the directors, the cameramen, everybody there. So it, it felt, it was kind of felt a little bit like, I suppose, a bit like a, a college or a university, you know, it was, it had that atmosphere, but very, very, very fast paced. It was a great training ground, actually, of I don't know that I've ever uh, that I've since that worked in an environment where you had to think on your feet, come up with ideas really quickly. Charlie was incredible in the way as a series producer, the way that he could re-edit a piece in his head or just even, you know, in those days we were doing even paper edits and he would just kind of rip it up and put it together in a different order and give it back to you and tell you to go go away and come back. And in, in those days we had to, we did everything. We had to, we, we came up with the ideas, we pitched the ideas, we sourced all the interviews, we sourced all the material, we wrote the narrative and then we produced it ourselves often and sometimes live. So it was a, <laughs> it was very uh, nerve wracking as well. And so, did you find that there were sort of any knockbacks or discrimination? I mean, at, at that time, you know, it was a pretty male dominated world, even in the kind of the youth sector of of TV. So, yeah. what was your experience? Well, after leaving there, um, I, I worked on a couple of other shows in a similar kind of vein. But then I, I was asked to interview for for a particular job. I won't say which one it was, but it was for a major broadcaster. <laughs> and I didn't, and, and it seemed to be the natural path from everybody that came from those those kind of shows. They, they, they hired a lot of people who were considered to be a kind of on that kind of use youth with a ending in an F, YWF, um, <laughs> and, and that kind of vein, that was a logical step for them to go to. And I didn't get the job, which to me was, you know, a bit of a surprise, but, you know, but, and then I got a call from the producer to say that I hadn't got the job because they had exceeded their quota, uh, which meant basically they had enough black people on screen. So it's interesting to me now because people always talk about quotas and they say people shouldn't get their jobs just because they're black or just because they're female. And that's always that's a big argument in the in, in this whole space of diversity and inclusion. And what they don't realize is for that for years, people have not been getting a job, whether they're qualified for those very reasons. So that was a bit of a uh, I think when I reflect upon that time, I think I didn't do anything about it. And that upsets me now because it wasn't possible. There wasn't, it was pre those days of people defending themselves and defending themselves as a group. I think we've, we've made enormous strides in the last few years with things again, which people have 
both negative and pos positive reactions to, like Me Too. Me Too, people say in, in some in some areas it may have re readdressed the balance and in some ways it it went too far. But I, I think that the whole point of these movements is that it gives you a voice and it gives you the possibility to make things normal. It's ludicrous that we are, as women, we're 51% of the population. We're not, we're not even 50%. We're, we're, there are more of us. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to say that in some industries there'll be 10, only 10% women. What sense does that make? And, and I always say that, you know, back then, you know, if people say, well, why didn't you, why didn't you step up and why didn't you complain? And I was like, well, who are you going to complain to? You're going to, the only people to complain to were the ones that were discriminating against you, you know? Yeah. Point was, in those days, they didn't even think they were discriminating against you. They thought that they were being kind enough to offer, you know, <laughs> a few to have a percentage of their workforce which previously probably was not, was probably mostly white. They were being generous in allowing a percentage to be black. So as I said, it was the fact that quotas, you can say 25%, but you can't have 26%. That's not something that most that people actually, I think are, are even aware might even have ever have been a consideration. So you up stakes and, and head off to, to Rome. And so, you how did you create a, a carve out a career for yourself there well when i went to rome for the very first time it was actually quite an impulsive move um because i was headhunted for a job and it so it wasn't something i was thinking about at all i went for um an interview with the head of the company who was I later discovered a little bit impulsive and slightly crazy himself and uh, and he offered me a job on the spot even though actually there were still people in the corridor waiting to be interviewed which should have been an indication <laughs> of things to come but anyway so I went out there um, and actually had a wonderful time in Rome working for um, a company called Orbit which was kind of like uh, an incredibly strange setup it was because it was a, a uh, the first digital pay TV um, network for the Middle East and the first TV, uh, I think, in fact, maybe it was the first digital paid service in the world, actually. And it was the first one to try and offer Western programming to the Middle East. So it's based in Italy, in Rome, but actually focused on the Middle East. And the staff were very international. The top level <laughs> tended to be mostly Americans. British were kind of the, the next level. Then people from a few people from some countries in the Middle East, because I think there are countries where it's acceptable to, to work <laughs> and some it's not. It was Saudi owned the company. And then the next level, probably management level generally, or the le next level of workers tended to be the local workers who were Italian. So that was again, a, a strange kind of hierarchy. And uh, I, I think eventually a lot of people, the good people generally tend, do tend to rise to the top. So there was a lot of, and, and they did eventually, but it was, it was quite a strange uh, setup to have 600 people all thrown into, into Rome. And uh, we've all left now. Orbit's now moved to Beirut and we're all all around the world um, and it's given a huge, it was a, a huge basis to have a lot of international friends in the industry 
and to start to see things differently. After that, I started my own company and uh, I was already going to all the international TV markets on a regular basis uh, and speaking on, on a daily basis to people from all over the world. So I think what that did was change my way of thinking in that I, in particularly for my work, but also my view on things generally in the world, because I, my perspective was not just what it was before, which was from a UK point of view. And that, that kind of very slightly insular thinking of how it affects you on a local value, on a local level, which doesn't make any sense in a, in a way, particularly in the TV industry, it doesn't because it's the same as TV, a TV program is a product, if you like. So if you're making coffee and you sell it only to the UK, then that's a limited market. But if you can sell it globally, then you're making a fortune um, and everyone's enjoying much better coffee probably because <laughs> so it's the, the same. It's the way that you, it's the way that you look at television. You look at it, does this work on a, a local level and does it work on a global level and how can you make those two things work together? And so it's all going swimmingly and, and you're um, sort of doing the lion's share of raising your, your two girls and, and managing your business. And, and usually for, some, for most people, there's something that kind of stops them in their tracks and, and gives them, you might be able to say, the opportunity to rethink and, and reassess. So what was that for you? Well, particularly when I was in Rome, after I had my my two children, at that stage I was doing um, acquisitions and I had a quite, I was considered to be senior management and there were very few women in, the, in that kind of space. So uh, they were, I think, out of 20, 20 people, there was only, there were only two, two of us were female. And when I was expecting my first child, I went on this standard Italian system maternity benefit i just had the baby and they tried not to pay my maternity benefit because they said that uh they they were worried that it would create for some reason they were worried that it would create a precedent for people at a senior level in the company you know and i said there's only other one other woman and she doesn't look like she's thinking about having a child at the moment but no they didn't want to do this Uh, and when I returned to work my job had completely changed as well what was a very long story short I learned that they didn't really want to have women that had children working in that company and that they had that attitude to other people at different levels and there there were a lot of people all seeing the same lawyer (laughs) to try and defend their position. So uh, that made me think, well, you know, there are a lot of obstacles, not women and women of colour to to consider. That was a a knock, if if you like. Another thing which stopped me in my tracks as well, I had a writing partner. This is much later. And we even continued to write during the pandemic. And we were writing a comedy built on our own experiences, uh, him being a British person that had moved to Italy many, many years ago and uh, and built up a kind of empire of, of teaching people to speak English with using comedy as well. So we were writing a script together and during the pandemic, he, he unfortunately, not of COVID, but 
let's just say if if it hadn't been for covid uh he he um would have got better treatment but unfortunately he passed away so and and that's again something which obviously was stops you in your tracks there was also another colleague who in the tv industry who uh before the vaccinations were available we spoke to him um he then he went out met another friend he he felt sick apparently and it it was just, the shock was that in within 10 days he died of getting covid so those kind of things are a huge kind of wake up calls because they re- you you realize that life is can be very short and you have to be very you have to be very sure what you want um and what's important and so out of that in regrouping what did you decide that was the thing that was going to be really important for you to do moving forward and and for you to champion and and use your skills and your abilities and your connections to make a different kind of impact in the world I've been very much focused on promoting diversity and inclusion. Also try not to use those words all the time because <laughs> sometimes they're triggers with people, but just to make the world, uh, just just to try and do my bit to make the, everyone have a, an, op- an equal opportunity because that's all really diversity and inclusion and representation. All those words mean is that everyone should have a chance to do what they want. And it's ludicrous that there's so many highly skilled people, women, minorities, people that are, are disabled, who are, are not able to get, they're better qualified than the people that are doing the jobs at the moment quite often, and they don't get the jobs. So I've worked with, um, on a, on an industry level, we, we started a, a, um, a group called Diversify TV. Um, and it started off just, um, as you know, uh, Lou, that we we go to Cannes twice a year. Um, the main TV markets are called MIP TV and MIPCOM. We used to meet kind of off-site, if you like, away from the Palais in a little bar. Uh, a few of us would meet and we were from minorities and we would talk about the fact that, isn't it odd that the only people that look like us uh, that we see are the security staff? <laughs> which is true it was true there you know the security staff were almost exclusively black uh, but there were very very few people um even though there's a lot of countries in the world and and these markets were supposed supposedly representing the entire world tv international world so we started just to speak together and to see if in some way we could help each other and then the the organizers of the market heard more about what we were doing um and they got on they got on board with it because at the end of the day for them if things are more diverse and more in- inclusive um they get more people attending they get the content improves and on a global level everyone makes more money so people really embraced it partly because it's it's the right thing to do but also because it had, it's been proven, particularly in the, on, maybe on the film side, it's been proven with things like Black Panther, which which uh, was one of the most successful films ever uh, commercially, and with Netflix again, that's another example uh, where they have not gone through the kind of standard 
we only do Hollywood blockbusters. They've looked at country, they've gone country to country and they found the best, the best content that they can. And to perhaps the surprise of people who'd always gone along using different formulas and not had that kind of global viewpoint, they've had tremendous hits with films that were not necessarily in the English language or not starring established international English-speaking stars. Similarly, there's been things like Bollywood, which is, you know, Bollywood and Nollywood, uh, the, Niger- the Nigerian um, TV markets. They're, they are, in some cases, they're bigger than Hollywood, if you if you, if you look at them on a commercial. If you look at the numbers, they, they are quite often, they're, they're, you know, the three of them, first, second and third. I forget which order. So that's what I've been doing. I've been promoting that. I've been working at Diversify TV. We started, MIP came on board. They formed a diversity and inclusion advisory board, which I'm part of, which include, includes people from Amazon and Disney and all kinds of major companies. The Diversify TV Excellence Awards moved to become a major part of the MIPCOM offer. So we do that. We recognize and celebrate uh, content which comes from those kind of um, usually um, underrepresented areas or, or subjects that are, that are less represented. We've managed to elevate some of that content to a, to a level where it's, it's, it's more visible on a on a kind of global level and then other organizations have also um, been making an effort to uh, to redress the balance in, in as such so i was invited to be uh, a bafta member which i have done so i've been judging one of the judges obviously because we all bafta members judge all the um film and tv content so i've been very much it's made me very busy. I've had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, none of this work actually, you know, you get paid for. But uh, <laughs> which is another subject altogether, which is, you know, where does it stop when you give your your time and your money? How do you how do you um, make sure that you still get paid when you're involved in movements which really do result in change? You obviously have to put a lot of your you have to give away a lot of your time. And moving forward, it it's important that you know, if you're going to be part of the the education in changing uh, the culture and the world and creating a more level playing field, going from sort of what probably is at the moment an exercise in ticking boxes for, for many organizations to actually being where we don't have to use the word diversify or inclusion because that is how the world is as we move forward. But in that process, if you're doing the education, then then you need to be compensated for that. And so we we talked the other day about non-exec directorships. And, and so are those kind of opportunities out there? Well, this is something which I, I hope that they will be. And I'm very open to to those kind of offers. If you go to anybody, any major businesses site and you click on their often they have photographs of their directors and still it looks like a, an old boy network it's still mostly male middle class you know white it's it, it's still the same at that level and i think that's that that's where they could affect some change a non-executive director level means that they have a voice a voice doing exactly what as, as what we've just been discussing looking at ways 
they can bring in diversity and inclusion um, to actually make it their businesses more effective. Companies have proved with what the way that they always prove, which is, do we make more money? Uh, do we make more money if we have more points of view coming across? Um, again, of course, if you have, if you're an all male uh, director team and you're making all your all the crucial decisions, really, it's incredible to think that having a woman on board isn't going to change the way you look at things. Of course it is. And having, you know, pe people from all kinds of uh, underrepresented groups is got to be just a little slice of your marketing pie that you haven't really a full focus to. So yes, I, I'm hoping that that could be something that I could do is to, to look at becoming a board member and helping some companies focus on on those kind of issues a lot of companies now also have diversity and inclusion officers but that's it's still not the same it's not the same as having say a, a counselor or an advisor somebody which is what a, a non-executive director is they come in it's not a full-time position it's some somebody that comes in to give them the focus on a particular kind of area often so that would be something that i'd be very keen to look at and explore and in the process of of moving the juggernaut of, of change. How do you define courage? Uh, that's a, a good question. I think courage is taking a risk, isn't it? And I think courage is to have the ability to rip up your life and start again. <laughs> so courage, <laughs> courage is always, is to keep doing that, to look at everything and think, okay, this isn't right. This isn't right. This makes no sense. There's so many things in our lives that make little sense. And we do them because we've always done them. We do them on a personal level. We do them on a macro level, on a global level. We do it sometimes with our choice of even who runs a company, uh, a company or even a country, a country, actually, that's probably better. And we stick with things just because we're used to them. I feel like I've ripped up my life and started again a few times, but that doesn't make what I do always right at the time. And I think you've got to look at that and you've got to think it's never too late and it's never really the wrong moment to have the courage. And it does take courage because it's an enormous effort to start again or to refocus or to revisit things that you've been doing potentially the wrong way and a little bit of your head always knows it's the wrong way and and to, to do it again in a different way well you and i've got plans afoot to uh, redress the balance so we do we do <laughs> so watch this space watch, exactly yeah <laughs> we will be we'll we'll be there <laughs> So thank you so much, Bumi, for being a driving force for the under underrepresented and for producing sustainable and inclusive content that leads the way for a more diverse and equal playing field across the board. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks, Lou, for inviting me. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And you too. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Bumi, for showing us that even in the zigzag of life, when we have our eye on the end goal, we can get to where we want to be. You can find out more about Boomi on www.lbbc.eu and follow her on LinkedIn at Boomi Akintonwa. 
Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage, and see you next week.